0: You're listening to the Guys Who Do Stuff Podcast. Welcome to the Guys Who Do Stuff Podcast. I'm Rinky Dinky Moho. <laughs> and this.
1: Uh, Joe. Yeah. Hey Joe. Yeah.
0: Hey. Hi, I'm Rinky Dinky Moho. Great to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you as well. Today we have Dr. William Porter on the show.
1: Yeah. Dr. William Porter is an author local to our area considers himself to be an entrepreneur yes he
0: does he, he said it has to be that way right when you're an author you're also an entrepreneur is mm-hmm. that something yeah. he's yeah that well, is what that, he said that is what he said but this is the introduction right <laughs> yes it is <laughs> crap <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay because you have a great fasten your seat belt because Dr. Porter is going to take you on a ride Oh, Dr. is in the house today on the podcast we don't mess around, around.
2: You're listening to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. Get unstuck, tell a better story, and have a good answer to the question, what are you doing today? Do this stuff.
1: All right, well, welcome to the podcast today. I'm Joe. (laughs) I was going to say that I was you. I was (laughs) looking at you. Let's just switch today. Let's switch. I'm Josh. And I'm Joe. Mm
0: coffee Uh, yummy
1: we're really excited today in the studio we've got dr william porter joining us on the guys who do stuff podcast dr p thank you Thank you so much for being here. We know you because we're in a networking group with you and you're an awesome guy. You're an author. The first thing I think about, Lori asked me who was on the podcast and I said, uh, Dr. William Porter, and I was telling her a little bit about you. But I love the way when you're doing your little uh, talk at the B&I that you refer to yourself as an entrepreneur. I just never thought of it that way before, that authors are actually entrepreneurs.
2: Well, I never thought of it either before I became an author.
1: Yeah. But uh, I belong to
2: another group uh in Raleigh. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the City Club of Raleigh, but anyway, we have a, uh, an author's group, a small group of people, about five to ten people meet every month. Yeah. And we talk about how we go about uh, furthering our business because we look at being an author as being a business. Yeah. And so, uh, but in general, I don't think a lot of people look at uh Professional writing and uh, being an author is being uh, uh, an entrepreneur. Yeah.
1: Uh, I think it is. I situation. think it's a good way to look at
2: it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so, what, what kind of doctor?
0: How did you get the doctor name?
2: Well, I did uh, go to school. I was, uh, uh, I always wanted to be a teacher, even mm. when I was small. Mm. I uh, had a vision of standing in front of a group of uh, people with the tie on. I go way back. Uh, I I came up in the 50s and the 60s. Mm. And during that time, uh, it was the time when television first came out. Uh, But anyway, I always had a vision of uh, teaching. I guess uh, my parents talked about it a lot. Uh, my parents didn't have a lot of formal education. Uh, they did graduate from high school, for example. Uh, and but they always talked to me about getting more, uh, getting more education
1: than yeah. they got. So you, were you the first person in your family to go to to go to college, your immediate family anyways? But
2: uh, I was one of the first. Actually, my brother went to college. He went to uh, the military. Uh, he's a little older than I am with the uh, encouragement from my parents and the motivation from my parents that uh, I was gonna get an education as well. I looked at him as a positive role model as far as me going in that direction. So ultimately I ended up uh, going to college too. Uh, He actually uh, studied Spanish because of his experience in the military. I didn't go that route. I actually uh, studied geography. I always wanted to do, I always wanted to travel, love to travel. Uh, and I always especially wanted to study about different kinds of places. And uh, and so that gave me the internal motivation yeah. to uh, study. But uh, I didn't know if that formal course of study was available until I got to college. Actually, it was my uh, second year in college before I found out that geography was available as a discipline mm. that I could get into and study. And so that's what I did.
1: So what was your, what was your early home life like? Well, as I said, I, uh, grew up,
2: uh, in Rocky Mount, by the way, which is about an hour east of, uh, Raleigh. Uh, is that a small town? It's a small town in the Eastern part of the state. And, uh. For your information, I'm 69 years old. 69. 69. <laughs> and uh, so I came up, as I said, in the uh, 50s. But uh, I remember experiences in my childhood vividly. One was Hurricane Hazel mm-hmm. back in 1954. I'm sure you all weren't around at that time. Well, we've heard about it. But you heard about mm-hmm. Hurricane Hazel, a very uh, uh Uh, damaging hurricane. And I remember all of the uh, family being in the house. I have some cousins that live uh, about uh, three or four blocks from where we live, but they didn't have television back in those days in the early 50s. And so I remember uh, all of my cousins coming around uh, to uh, our house. It was a very bad situation. And the other thing was uh, our house uh, got uh, uh, burned to the ground. Actually, uh, this was later on. And
1: oh, I thought it was like during the hurricane. I oh, was wow. like, "Wow, that's
2: uh, bad. Uh, well." <laughs> no. Actually, that was about uh, maybe uh, eight years after the hurricane. I believe it occurred in 1962. And uh, actually, these uh, this experience, as well as the hurricane, uh, as and other experiences. Are in the uh, book, my most recent book, Miracles in the Life of Ordinary People. But anyway, that obviously that was a tremendous, uh, traumatic uh, experience. And, How many brothers and uh,
1: sisters did you have, Dr. Porter?
2: Uh, I did have uh, uh, a younger brother, but he came on a little later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a sister though, um, and uh, but she passed. Uh, she passed uh, when I was I believe it was, it was 10 years old. Uh, I was 10 years old. She was she was eight years old when she passed. It was kind of interesting because uh, she uh, she was ill. Uh, and I remember uh, just as it was yesterday uh, how she passed, as a matter of fact, and when she passed, we went to school together uh, in the first, second grade. Third grade, uh, first first and second second grade, and uh, but uh, but after that time, of course, it was just me in the house with mm. my parents. Uh, and two or three years later, again, our house burned down, and that was what was another the traumatic.
1: What was situation. the sickness that you lost your sister to?
2: It was uh, meningitis, I believe. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, you guys were young uh, and close. It was tough. It was. uh uh again, a traumatic experience. And at that particular time, though, as a child, I didn't understand uh, a lot about death, like most people don't understand about death, especially when it happens close to you. Uh, my whole frame of reference back in uh, those days was that we are all physical beings and didn't recognize the fact of our totality Uh is uh spirit as well as physical and but I only considered uh her physical being. Uh and especially I remember the uh, funeral service and uh yeah. looking at her in the in the uh casket and she looked obviously um, pale and lifeless and she was but i did not consider the fact that uh her spirit was released basically at that time i didn't have that kind of spiritual awareness yeah and so from that standpoint it was very traumatic it was a very sad situation
1: do you remember much at 10 years old about how your parents reacted my mother reacted uh from the uh, my
2: mother reacted very um, I don't know how to put it, but uh, I remember lying on a couch in the same room where my sister was. And uh, the doctor said that uh, she was gone or she's going and she was dying. And uh, when it finally happened, I heard my mother started crying. She ran out of the house uh, up and down the street street, saying that, uh, uh, oh, she's gone, she's
1: gone, she's gone. Your parents now, it's you and your parents from 10 years old on. Um, What was your relationship like with your folks?
2: It was a a good relationship. Uh, I respected my father. Uh, Obviously, I respected my mother. Uh, My mother was a homemaker. My father worked at the local railroad uh, yard. Uh, My father didn't want her to work. He wanted to be the breadwinner. So Mm -hmm. it was that kind of mentality back in those
1: days. He worked at the railroad station. I'm just trying to think, did you get you guys grew up in Rocky Mount? It must have been a huge sacrifice for your parents to encourage you to seek higher education, knowing what the price tag on that would be.
2: Well, again, they wanted me to get the education that they didn't get. Right. Right. because of various reasons, I still don't know exactly why my mother didn't get uh, the education that she could have gotten. As I said, she didn't finish high school. My father didn't finish high school, but uh, my father had four other siblings and he uh, had to, I do know this, he had to, to, to support them. Yeah. And again, back in those days, the person or the sibling that was able to support uh, and whatever way possible, the other uh, siblings uh, did just that. And that's what he did. The other thing that happened when I was small coming up was the fact that uh, we all went to church. When Sunday came around, uh, we would uh, call a local taxi mm. and then uh, we would spend the morning in church. And then after uh, church, we would come back uh, And usually our pastor would take us back. And it wasn't the fact that I really wanted to go to church, but I went because my parents wanted me to go. And our pastor was a fire and brimstone type pastor. And uh, my mother was very demonstrative in church. Uh, I've always been kind of laid back. Was your dad that way too? My father was more laid back. So in that sense, I guess I took more after after my father. And Speaking of my father, uh, he was not as demonstrative as my mother, but uh, he did uh, read the Bible a great deal. I remember after working during the week uh, when he came home on Fridays, uh, his father, my grandfather, used to come by our house. uh, And uh, I remember hearing both of them talk. Uh, about biblical subjects a great deal. The interesting thing was that they also uh, partook of a lot of wine. (laughs) And uh, so it was kind of interesting. Again, I didn't understand all of the dynamics of uh, Mm. of that kind of situation, but I do remember scriptures like uh, the strong must bear the infirmities of the weak (laughs) and uh, uh, in my father's house, there are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. And a lot of other scriptures that they talked about that I really didn't understand at the time. But, uh, of course, I continued to go to church with them and uh, until high school, uh, and I left. And, and that's when uh, I, uh, uh, basically, I didn't go to church as much after I left high school. I went to college. I guess I wanted to experience other things. I finally got away from the tutelage of my parents. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, what year did you go to college? I uh, started college in 1967 uh, during the uh, height of the Mm -hmm. civil rights Mm -hmm. uh, movement uh, in America. How was that?
0: What challenges did you face being a man of color and, and going for higher education?
2: Well, uh, there were a lot of challenges even earlier on. I mentioned that my father worked on the railroad, uh, and uh, we used to have a pass. Uh, uh, he had a pass for us to travel on the uh, train. Uh, okay, so
1: they gave like a pass to the employees. Uh, yeah, there was a colored
2: section and there was a, a white section, and of course, we went into the colored section
1: again. I didn't as a young have an understanding. Of yeah, that. as a young man, did that did that seem like injustice to you or did that just seem like that's just the way it works. That's what everybody's doing.
2: Seemed like, uh, that's simply the way it was. Uh, I remember my father, for example, uh, working, uh, for, uh, our insurance man, uh, our insurance man, which was a white gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, because he was very nice. uh, uh but, uh, Later, I found out that uh, some things could have been a lot better. Uh, In other words, sometimes being nice is not the best thing. Uh, Being uh, fair is the best thing. And so it was kind of a subservient kind of relationship, Mm -hmm. but it's one that everybody understood that, that's basically the way it was, and so, but it wasn't until I got to college uh, again in 1967 when we had the uh, civil rights uh, uh, activities and to the demonstrations that I can came to understand what what various injustices there were when I was coming up.
1: Yeah. And
2: there's just a whole lot of things that you have to overcome. And gradually, I did fortunately overcome those things. And I knew I had to get uh, uh, a higher uh, level education in order to teach, certainly you know, in a college, because I really wasn't interested in teaching in high school. And uh, again, I didn't really know what I wanted to uh, major in. I majored in sociology. All right. uh, then majored in uh, psychology, and I found psychology was uh, too difficult. I didn't like that subject. Hmm. And then I uh, saw a classmate of mine who was really kind of a rowdy person uh, during my freshman year. But by the time I had become a sophomore, I ran into him one day and he showed me his report card and he had all Hmm. eights.
0: He was doing something right in the rowdiness. Well,
2: he was doing something right and in addition to that he told me uh what he had enrolled in and he those grades came from uh, a, a geography uh, <laughs> curriculum
1: and you're
0: like if this guy can do it and I can <laughs> do it and you're like i'm going to do that but i'm not going to be rowdy imagine
2: the places i'll go <laughs> exactly and but i did find out that lo and behold geography was really uh, what i wanted to uh major in all along but up until that time i never knew that that subject yeah. Uh, was in existence on the campus and so i went immediately to the chairperson enrolled in uh, the geography uh, uh department and right. uh, the rest is history are you say. are you still friends with the rowdy guy as a matter of fact he turned out to be a lawyer <laughs> did he really yeah and i think he lives in virginia someplace that makes sense most rowdy people become lawyers <laughs> i think that's uh, how it works, works. Yeah. yeah i don't know if you've heard of academic freedom or not but uh, no, teaching, especially at the college level, you're given uh, some classes to teach and and uh, at various times. And uh, and that's basically what your responsibility is, is to teach uh, at those times. And of course, you're expected to keep office hours and to go to uh, committee meetings. Mm-hmm. And I like that idea because it wasn't uh, a matter of going to uh, a place and sitting at a desk for say seven eight hours. I, right. I didn't I didn't like that. So. so
1: academic freedom means like these are your responsibilities and how you spend the rest of your time is up to you. Exactly. Um, were your parents able to see you become a professor? What was their reaction to that?
2: They uh, they did. Uh, they as a matter of fact, uh, my family came out to uh, when I got my masters, uh, and this was in Kansas by the way. Mm-hmm. I got my masters at uh, Kansas State University, and everybody came out and. And, uh, yeah, they were they were very they were thrilled. They yeah. were thrilled. And, uh, and so I have the same mentality, uh, of course, since uh, uh, working at uh, at my alma mater. And when I got my master's, you have to have a master's to teach at the college level. I went back uh, to uh, uh, Central, North Carolina Central and began to teach in the very department that I graduated from two years earlier.
1: Oh, What was uh, that like? Uh, Were there was, still people there? They're like, I recognize you. You're the teacher now. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, uh, when I
2: was a freshman, uh, as I said, that was a very volatile period. And a lot of my classmates, unfortunately, didn't make it, it was the time of the Vietnam War. My first class, I think it was a world geography class. We had about 30, 35 people in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, but when I walked into the class for the first time, I realized that about seven or eight of those uh, uh, students were my former classmates. Most of that particular group actually had gone into the military, had come back to uh, to to take advantage of their GEI bill. Oh, okay. Which, uh, if you're familiar so with So
1: they'd, they'd served a little bit in the military and then and they were they able to get their right. education paid for.
2: And they ended up in my class, one of the classes that they, uh, that they took. But the thing is, is that I was thinking that I would have a lot of problems with them. Uh, because I knew what they were like when uh we all came to school together, yeah, but uh they were the uh the nicest uh students in the world I didn't have any problems
1: with them at all, yeah, wow. and that was it they had gone apparently through a transformation the the transition into becoming an author, so you retired from your your career as a professor
2: so what I decided to do was to write about uh uh people's uh, experiences, especially miraculous kinds of things that happen to people from time to time because of my experience uh, and my background in church going way back. And uh, because along the way, I've heard a lot of experiences. Yeah, not just the Bible teaching, but the
0: stories, real stories you've heard from people along the way, right? About miraculous events. Exactly.
2: So inspired by things. Yeah, exactly. But it all started actually with our daughter. She came home one day and said, "Uh, Daddy, Daddy, guess what? I ran out of gas. And uh, she said, I said, well, what? And with her being totally out of gas, she was able to navigate with, in her opinion, the help of God yeah. to the service station. And so she declared that God helped her. It was a divine intervention kind of thing. And so I said, well, why not write a story about that? And uh, and so uh, and from that point, I uh, began to write other stories, short stories, uh, non-fictional stories about people's experiences that uh they uh indicated uh, happened to them yeah.
1: and uh that and this has been the topic of most of your books now right you right that's what i
2: write about i write about uh people's experiences that uh, you can't explain other than by a divine influence at least that's what many people believe
1: yeah so i'm curious how do you define a miracle
0: great question joe
1: well it's kind of interesting because
2: in my latest book, uh, "Miracles in the Lives of Ordinary People," uh, one of the first things I talk about is the uh, definition of a miracle. Basically, it's uh, a surprising event that's inexplicable. You it's, you can't uh, rationalize it, but it's something that's good that's happened to you, and uh, and so that's that that would be a miracle, whether it's uh, Uh, Being uh, healed of a medical situation, uh, getting a job that you didn't expect to get uh, uh, or or anything else that may have happened to you that is very difficult to explain or cannot be explained uh, naturally, uh, but in fact has happened and it happened for your benefit. So that's what I would refer to as a miracle.
1: Yeah. How do you how do you feel or how do you. Do you ever get questions about people saying, like, that doesn't sound like a miracle, that just sounds like a regular thing? Yeah, anti miracleism. <laughs> anti miracleism. What's <Some> up <of> that? <laughs> <laughs> so, you've written a lot about people in their stories about what they believe to be miraculous. What do you think are some of the, the common threads that you notice in those stories of people that choose to view? The things that happen in their life as some kind of intervention by God or or like a good surprise versus people that just think about things as, well, that's just a consequence.
2: Well, I think that uh, being a scientist, I'm not an active scientist now, but when I was active in science, uh, we did experiments and uh, a simple way of putting it, if you do something, if you do an experiment, say, uh, 95, 96, 97 times out of 100 times, and you have the the same thing show up, Mm -hmm. then there's something there. It it suggests a a valid relationship. right? And so that's the way I look at uh, miracles and uh, the fact that uh, these people are sincere when they believe that uh, a miracle did happen to them. And uh, I happen to believe that it was divinely orchestrated because when you hear these things over and over and over again, is suggests that something is going on.
1: That's interesting because like you came from a science background to be to be spending this portion of your life writing about like miracles and, and spirituality seems like a dissonant thing. Like that doesn't seem like the way most people would be spending their time. But to hear you equate it to um, your kind of training in the scientific background of knowing like, hey, these this is a pattern. There's something to this, as opposed to I think what a lot of scientists would view it as. Well, it's just a coincidence. And you're saying no. Too many coincidences mean that there's got to be more, and more investigation is necessary exactly. into the cause of of these repeatable patterns that exactly. seem to be coming up in the lives of people. Exactly. And, and in that uh, sense, uh, I
2: think that science, uh, a knowledge of science, really has helped me. To understand the validity of some of these otherwise unbelievable kinds of experiences,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: because, again, it's valid scientifically when, again, you co- uh, uh, conduct an experiment and something happens 95, 98 right.
1: percent of the time. It's if just you can a duplicate valid, the results. Yeah. yeah,
2: And the same thing, as I said, is true as far as uh, spiritual kinds of things.
1: When thinking back over your life, the way that you grew up, the situation you grew up in, the career you chose, now what you're doing, um, can you think of growing up? Was there an event that happened that, um, that kind of either foreshadowed what you're doing now affected your life in some way today or still affecting your life that kind of got you into the mode of, um, becoming an author?
2: Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, um, It was uh, when my sister passed. When you come to an understanding that the physical body is driven by what some in the faith calls the real you. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's the spirit that drives and makes the body functional. And uh, that's what I did not consider. And so when I left the uh, cemetery after the uh, maticians had uh, placed my sister's body in the the ground. I was... You have weird kind of thoughts, especially about death when you're young. I was saying to myself, wow, you know, she's in the ground and she's... It's cold there because I think it was April or May. April when she passed. And uh, so I was really concerned about that being a brother. I mean, she... Mm. Leaving her in the ground. But... I was considering only her physical body. Uh, The fact of the matter uh, is now I understand that her spirit was released uh, when she passed. But the fact of the matter is, is even now, over 60 years, uh, my sister uh, still lives. Now, again, I can't explain that, but
1: it's just something that uh, you have to believe, be willing to believe. Do you think that... um As an as an author and you're working on another book right now? I'm working on my fourth book. uh, It will be a sequel of
2: uh, the second book. Heaven Can't Wait.
1: How many books do you plan on writing? It depends Mm. on
2: how long we are talking about the physical body. How (laughs) long I'm around physically. Do you use an old school typewriter? No. No. Well, I don't. Do they still exist? What's is your me? method? What's your preferred yeah. the new school typewriter. That is a computer. You use a laptop. Yeah. A laptop. <laughs> right. right on. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I actually uh, freehand a lot. Yeah. I don't. Some authors I understand use the 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 computer, the laptop, mm-hmm. you know, and and write that way. Well, that's to me, it's not really writing. That's using the laptop. Mm-hmm. But I actually literally write. Um, you also teach
1: workshops for authors, correct?
2: I offer workshops for uh, people who would like to become authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, But the workshops that I uh, conduct are those that require basically individual uh, guidance. Yeah. And, uh, and I can teach uh, or instruct uh, to a larger group as well, but usually it's individualized instruction. Anyone who would like to uh, have a greater knowledge of uh, how to uh, to write uh, a book, or maybe if you need to write a pamphlet or just writing in general, I think I can help a lot. Do you yeah, help with area. the writer's block? I think so. As a matter of fact, from the standpoint that uh, I don't necessarily want to write all the time. Yeah. Mm. But I know that that's what I do. And sometimes I have to sit down and start to write something, uh, even though I might not want to write at that particular time. Yeah. Just kind of get you into it. So that things will flow. And it's kind of interesting too, uh, when I do that, uh, in many cases, I end up writing five, six, seven, 10 pages of material. And the idea is just to start, you know, in order to succeed, Mm -hmm. uh, you have to begin even this situation here that yeah. you all are doing. I mean, it might, you might go through some mistakes and you might have to do some correction. Yeah. Do, you, do you have a happy place? Like a, a geographical place that you like to go, like walk
0: in the woods or driving around or, you know, late night at IHOP. What's your, what's your place? Happy place. To write? For inspiration. For inspiration? Yeah, for inspiration. Like physically in
2: your, where do you get, like to go? Uh, it It's not a particular place, although I think usually... Early in the morning is a very good time just to pray, to reflect,
1: uh, to think about what you're going to do during the day. What's what's kind of your any weapons of choice you could pass on to people that are that are writing? You said mornings are great. Finding, priming the pump. I think that's a great example. I think that translates too for people that aren't authors. Are there any other kind of weapons of choice that you could pass along for people or tips
2: I would say whatever does it for you. Yeah. I know this is what I tell my daughter sometimes. And, you know, I might not do it that way. It might not work for me, but as long as it works for you, it'll give you more success.
1: Yeah. The idea of writing a book seems daunting. Like writing a book, I put in a similar category with running a marathon or doing something huge. I'm just curious. are you, Have you always been like an ambitious type person? You just want to do something big?
2: <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, uh, I, I think the spirit, again, I keep coming back to the spirit mm-hmm. because that's within each one of us. And the spirit guides you. Did you try a bunch of stuff before you decided to be an author in retirement? Well, I tell you what, I thought about what I might want to do. I thought about being a greeter at Walmart. Mm -hmm. I thought about uh, being a substitute teacher. Things tend to happen the way they're supposed to happen. Uh, They're not necessarily the way you would orchestrate things. Mm -hmm. Because as I said earlier, uh, God pretty much orchestrates everything, whether we believe it or not. Now, it doesn't mean that that we're gonna like everything that happens and we're gonna feel good about everything that happens. Uh, Just like uh, my sister passing, I mean, uh, I could have been the one who passed, maybe away, talking to my sister, maybe <laughs> instead mm. of talking to me, you know, things happen and we don't understand a lot that happens, but we just have to
1: believe. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You. If you want to find out more about uh, Dr. William Porter, you can go to williamporterlife.com. That's where you can find out about his books and a little bit more information about him. Yeah,
2: The new book is coming out over the summer and it's going to be a sequel, as I said earlier, of the second book, Heaven Can't Wait. And it's about relationships. I don't think I mentioned uh, what that particular book is about. It's a fictional book. It's about relationships. Uh, This young lady is uh, trying to find her proverbial heaven on earth Mm -hmm. but she has a a lot of pitfalls a lot of things that she has to deal with so i'm real excited about that yeah Uh, i have a radio program 881 the truth it's a a webcast i believe uh it's uh six o'clock on monday mornings from six to six thirty uh storytelling time And uh, uh, the past few months, I've been reciting uh, stories in Heaven Can't Wait. William, we love you and appreciate you. Thank you. Do this stuff.
0: Yeah, we're going to wrap this up.
1: (laughs) You cannot wrap again. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode with Dr. Porter. We do appreciate you tuning in with us. Yeah. One of the things that sticks out to me about Dr. William Porter Mm -hmm. is his perseverance. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, even in the show at one point, he was like, well, I was either going to be like a greeter at Walmart or I was going to author books. Yeah. Tenacity. Yeah, tenacity, perseverance, sticking with it. And here's a guy that already had a successful career. Yeah. And then decided to launch a whole new one. Yeah. I, I
0: my nickname for him has been Dr. P, but I think I'm going to call him Tenacious P now. Oh, that's good. You yeah. like that?
1: Tenacious P. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. waiting for his Jack Black. Yeah. as a part of their
0: He's really like a like a fine wine. I mean, he just keeps getting better, doesn't he? He's 69 now and he's in this zone writing three books already and uh, Yeah, and a very encouraging man. Just Very encouraging.
1: He's always interested in what you're doing and
0: Yes. Great guy to be around. The kind of guy you want to be like when you're 69, yeah. which is not far away for us, Joe.
1: Well, probably not. Yeah. Wait this. Life has been flying past. Yeah, that's yeah. true. We're going to slow it down, mm-hmm. take more naps. Take more naps. Not together,
2: though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just going to be clear about that. All right. All right. Dr. Porter, we love
2: you. We love making this stuff for you. You can help us out by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Get unstuck, tell a better story, and have a good answer to the question, what are you doing today?